subscribe to this podcast to get exclusive access to the after show shooting the breeze so today we have alex mcelroy mcelroy i should say uh on here and he is going to be discussing some apologetics he also pastors at church so it would be interesting to hear what you have to say about uh, this topic why don't you start out by telling us about yourself and uh, giving us a little introduction yeah, thank you for having me. First and foremost, I'm glad to be here. Um, what you're doing is necessary, and especially uh, the reach that, you, that you've been able to garner. That's great so, uh, for the kingdom to be able to, to advance. Um, yeah, my name is Alex McElroy. I am based in Chicago. I'm married for 13 years. Yes, <laughs> got two daughters. Um, I co-pastor a house church here in the city, um, formerly pastor of education at a larger church, much larger in the city as well. Um, and I also run my own apologetics ministry called Proof for the Truth, where we seek to give um, answers uh, or not just give answers, but help people uh, enter into a confirmed, confident and eternal relationship with the source of all life and purpose. Yeah, I think that is very important because uh information people can get so much wrong information these days that it's it's good for them to have a place to go to to get the right information mm. so uh, we'll put a link to uh that website in the uh, description here and uh why don't you tell me a little bit about your testimony and how god has worked throughout your life and what he's currently doing in your life yeah so it's always tough to know how far back to go but um uh I don't know how far back back to go. Um, Well, I'm originally from the East Coast. I was born in D.C., grew up in Maryland and Virginia. Um, My childhood, well, part of my childhood, I I lost my father at age 11, at a young age, and he was um, diagnosed with sickle cell. I think I was about five or six, and that led to more and more issues, and eventually he he succumbed to that. I was able to, um, you know, I was always doing well in school. So I, I got through school, went to a great college, University of Virginia. Um, but there I kind of went off the deep end, the wrong direction and um, getting involved in drugs and mm-hmm. drinking and everything else that comes with that. I was selling drugs as well and um, just very destructive life. So I guess I should back up. I did get saved when I was younger. I knew God, I, I understand what was happening but I was never discipled and I never really grew. Um, And so it was easier for me to fall away. Um, You know, my mom did the best she could. She did great actually, but there's just no um, replacement for that, that true life on life discipleship. So um, around that time, well, in college, I met my now wife, but at the time she was an atheist and how she got saved is a whole nother story. But um, I'm fast forwarding through a lot. So I managed to make it out of that lifestyle in college. Um, And when I came to Chicago after I got this job here, I was I had one friend, one Christian friend, and we started going to church. So I really I had stopped going to church because I felt too dirty to go to church. Um, I didn't have anybody there to tell me that that's the one place you need to go. Um, that come as you are, but you know, it's all, I want to clean myself up first, but of course you can't do that. And so 
I just kind of stayed away, but I started going back. And then also at the same time, I was trying to be a good son, I guess, and maturing a little bit. And so my mom would always send me books. I never read them. I just threw them in the back of the closet. So one day I was like, well, let me go be a good son and read one of these books. And the first book I picked out of the closet was The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. So I had never heard the word apologetics, didn't know what it was. wasn't looking for evidence. I just wanted to read a book. But I'm a very logical person, just the way I think in general. And so it just kind of appealed to me, this thing that we call apologetics. And so that, that just kind of started it. I kind of was self-taught for a while. And then I went and got more formal training through Cross-Examine Instructors Academy with um, Frank Turek, Jim Moore Wallace, Greg Kokel, Sean McDowell, Richard Howe, a bunch of others. Did that for about three years, did some training at RZIM, served with them as well. And then I went and got my uh, master's in apologetics a couple of years ago. Oh, and, cool. uh, but before that, even before I got my master's, I had already started my own conference. I already did two years of my own conference mm -hmm. before that. Um, so we just finished year three this past weekend. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And sadly, so many people, they, they do feel that they are too dirty to, to come to church or whatever, that they can do that on their own. And realizing that you can't do that on your own is, is, is huge and people need to hear that. Mm -hmm. So I think that's an important part of your testimony there. Amen. So with apologetics, it's a big subject, big topic, um, lots that could be discussed, but if you could just give us a basic rundown on what apologetics is for those who, who are out there and don't know. So the simple definition that I give is Apologetics is the branch of theology concerned with the accurate defense of the faith, often through scientific, historical, archaeological, or philosophical evidence. And there's the, definitely lots of historical evidence out there, more, yes. more than what most people realize. Yes. And as Christians, I think that's very important to our faith that we need to realize that. And, and I like to watch documentaries. My son's very smart. So he, he loves to watch these things too. And then he can prove all the other science shows wrong. And, and he does, <laughs> <laughs> he does it very well, actually. Um, so how can a Christian apply apologetics to their own life and use it to strengthen their faith? Okay. So a lot of ways. Um, well, let me, let me, before I even get into that, I think we need to kind of bust a myth <laughs> that I don't know how it's even here. So I, it's, it's almost become like a tagline of mine now that apologetics is not optional. There's a, I guess, a belief either, either intentional or unconscious or subconscious. I don't know, but that like people like me, the apologists do apologetics, right? And, and it's not really a, a Christian layperson type of thing to, to, to involve yourself in, but that's not true. And so the, the way we get apologetics, the way we get this understanding or this word even, is um, in part from 1 Peter 3.15, which says, study to uh, no, it says, always be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is in you, but with meekness and with a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, they will be made to feel ashamed. But the, the word to give a defense in the original Greek is the word apologia. So for all those who think like I made the word up or it's some new thing that we, it's not, it's in your Bible. <laughs> yeah, I like to go back to the original Greek when I, yeah. when, when I hear that, because I think 
that and, and, and like Hebraic, like it's so different from what a lot of the translations are today. And it can be confusing. Yes. <laughs> so I, I definitely think that, that that's important for us to, to learn to go to that for, for sources of information instead of just our own translations. Like even NIV is sometimes off on their translations. Yes. And, and Jonathan Kahn, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but he's a, he used to be a rabbi and now he's a, a big into ministry for, for Christianity and especially to the Judaist um, people out there. And so he always ties everything back to the original Hebrew and points out the words in there. And I just, I love reading his stuff because he, it's fascinating to, to learn. And I think it strengthens us. <laughs> it does. It does. You know, um, so this is what's called an interlinear your Bible. Now you can, you can, you can um, go to like blueletterbible.org and you can scroll through their online version of it. And this is, this is kind of hard to get. Actually, I got mine from a friend, but if you look in there, it has oh, the like all the, the English next to the Hebrew. It gives you all the definitions and obviously Greek in the new Testament. So you can see the original words and I want to be clear. And that, and so you brought up NIV and there are some problems in NIV and there's, there's, you know, this is part of apologetics is understanding how the canon was formed, how translations are formed, what is a formally equivalent, dynamically equivalent translation. But what everyone needs to understand is that a translation is never made from a translation. A translation is always made from here. Yeah. Whatever translation it is. Now, some get closer to this than others. But just so people understand how scholarship works, that it's not just, um, you know, whatever, however I think to interpret the words, I'm sitting here interpreting it by myself and this is my translation. That's not how it goes. So yeah, just, just in case anybody was wondering, but some translations intentionally seek to be what's called dynamically equivalent, which means they want to make it understandable for people who are English readers and they want to be as, as close to the original as possible, but they're leaning more towards understandability. And sometimes, as you just said, you lose a little bit of the original in that. Yeah. When we're, while we're talking about it, I have to <laughs> remind people, you know, it's cool to quote chapters and verses, which we all do, I do, but that's a relatively recent benefit or, or ability that we have. There were no chapters until the 13th century. There were no verses until the 15th century or 16th. So most of the history of the church, they couldn't read chapter and verse. They couldn't quote chapter and verse. They couldn't say in Ephesians 3, chapter whatever, or chapter verse whatever, which means they had to read all of Matthew and then talk about it or write a commentary about it or math or Romans or whatever. So the fact that we have over a million quotations from the early church fathers lets us know, number one, it was understandable that they were quoting from Matthew, even without chapter and verse because everyone else had read the entirety as well. Mm -hmm. So part of the thing that I think is hurting us, hurting the church to a degree is, um, it's like, a, it's, like a, it's like a blessing and a curse, right? It's, it's great that we can just go to a verse, go to a chapter and get it quickly. That's a good thing usually, but it also can make us lazy because then we feel, oh, I got the gist. I don't have to read the whole letter of Romans or the whole letter of Galatians but that's not the way the Bible works. It's just like, if I write you a letter and then I, and then you only read the middle sentence and say, I got the gist, Alex, like, that's not, <laughs> that's not going to work for me. I wrote five pages. You need to understand what I was yeah. trying to say. So 
<clears throat> essentially reading the Bible is reading someone else's mail. And we need to be faithful in how we do that. So I guess the first answer to your question of how lay people do this is just being faithful to the text. Don't assume it means what it means. Don't um, don't read into the text, which is called eisegesis. We want to be proper and faithful to the text and say, whatever it says is what I want to know. I don't want to bring my meaning to the text. I want to get it out of the text, which is exegesis. Yeah. And so many people make that mistake. They, yeah. they, they take one verse and they take it out of context. Like I had somebody on my YouTube channel who was trolling the other day and he was misquoting, like just taking one verse. And, and then he's like, well, and then I was kind of debated with him a little bit until I got to the point where I'm just like, you're, you don't actually want information. Right. So there's no <laughs> point you're wasting my time, yeah. but all he was doing was taking verses out of context constantly. And I'm like, that doesn't fly with me. I kept telling him, I said, well, you're missing the, you're missing the, the, the context of this whole thing. I said, if you read the, these verses before it and these verses after it, it actually means this. And so, so I was yeah. like, but he didn't want to hear any of that. I'm just like, okay, well, then there's, you're wasting my time. There's, there's exactly. no point if you're, if you're just here to troll and, and be that way. But I mean, so many people do that and some of them do that unintentionally mm -hmm. and they don't think about the fact that they're doing that. And that kind of leads them astray. And that's where I think apologetics kind of helps guide them back onto the right path. Absolutely. And pastors do it. I see. I mean, every Sunday, just scroll your timeline on Facebook or Instagram you'll see some pastor that is uh it's a clip from i know it's a clip from his sermon but especially like a lot of the big time famous ones yeah. just watch a clip and then if you're if you just <laughs> just take it and go back to the text and you're like wait but that's not what that means right and it's and and especially in western christianity where the appeal to the emotional in some in some spaces is so high people get excited about what the pastor's saying but if it's not true you're going to go from excitement to anger within some months because you're expecting this kind of prophecy or blessing to come but it was never going to come because it was never in the text to begin with and so like that's the part that makes me kind of um feel bad, feel sorry, because we already have enough to contend with. We, the church, especially me, a former youth pastor, what kind of keeps me going is um, toward my ministry is really directed towards youth and young adults, because we see the statistics of 65% of our young people walking away from the faith when they get to or yeah. through college. Yeah. Well, the reason is not because Christianity can't stand up, is they don't know it can. And if we don't prepare them before they leave, then they come back thinking we hid something from them or we didn't tell them the whole truth or the professor knows more than you or your mom or your youth pastor or whatever. It's not true. The professor's only giving you half the story. They just don't tell you that. And so half the time in, in right. universities, they are not at all Christian. They're wanting to steer you away from it. And, and that's, they'll tell you that. Yeah, exactly. They'll tell you upfront, like if you're a Christian on day one, you won't be by the time you leave my class. Yeah. So what do, what do our sad. kids do? Yeah. Yeah. And um, I, I, I call that the over-education problem. It's it, where I think, I think we put too much emphasis on education and, and it ends up leading, leading them astray because yeah. they aren't, they don't have that biblical foundation. Like you say, before they go, they don't have that biblical foundation. Yeah. Now. So I think 
and that's true. <clears throat> but we we need to. I've been advocating. I don't know how to make this happen, but I'll just keep talking about it until someone does it. <laughs> we need in high school, probably maybe before that, but it definitely at some point in high school, we need to teach young people how to think. So every like, there should be a philosophy one hundred and one class yeah, that there's there mandatory. Be. The reason is telling information is good to our young people and teaching them like this is how you read, this is how you do math. They need that. What I'm saying is how to think. There's three laws of logic. Um, so my my um, apologetics ministry is like leans heavily on philosophy. And while we're talking about it, everyone is a philosopher. Everyone. <laughs> uh, Alvin Plantinga, I think, said some people are just better at it than others. So <laughs> philosophy is not something anyone can say. I don't want to do that. If you think hard about anything, you're a, you're doing philosophy. So anyway, um, the three laws of logic: the law of non-contradiction says two opposing truths cannot both be true in the same time and space. The law of the excluded middle, which says not just two opposing truths can't both be true, but one of them must be true. There is no middle option. Um, the law of identity, that a thing is what it is, which sounds redundant, but it's a necessary law to prevent <clears throat> the, the fallacy of equivocation. So I don't want to go into all the details of that, but I'm going to say that Knowing how to think is, okay, you present an idea and then I present an idea and the kid is listening and saying, well, based on the law of non-contradiction, they can't both be right or one of them must be right. Just getting them to think that far because then they can go into the world and, and adjudicate between competing ideas and they won't say the ridiculous things that the culture is now saying, which is we all have our own truth. Yeah that's not possible. <laughs> not because I don't want it to be possible. It's, it's illogically and it's logically impossible. So it sounds good. It sounds feel good. And you know, everybody wins, but it's not, it's just not. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. I think that's where a lot of the gender identity issues come in too. is, well, there, there, there's science and then there's what people want to believe and <laughs> they're contradicting right now. Um, I've had, I got banned off Twitter for a year for simply pointing that out, but oh, wow. <laughs> I, I finally got unbanned after my MPs helped me, like my members of parliament from our federal government. I, wow. I have friends who are MPs and they, they got me unbanned. <laughs> wow. Where are you located? In Saskatchewan. Uh, but okay. uh, yeah, the, one of the ladies running for our leadership of the party I, su I support her and I, we had a really, really good conversation when, when she was here and, and about censorship, especially. And I'm like, yeah, it, it's a big deal. Like I, oh. it, it's hit my channel <laughs> on a few occasions, but, uh, and that's where that, again, that critical thinking in terms of like actually looking at it logically, instead of just being like, oh, I believe this. So you can believe that. Like it's no, like there is only one truth. Like you say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So for society as a whole, how can we overcome this kind of, of thinking? I know you presented philosophy teaching in, in school as well. Is there other ways for like to approach it in society? Yes, just not on social media. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it, it's going to be kind of case by case. And I know that that kind of sounds like a cop out, but it's, it's not. It's, it's that everyone's an individual and uh, we need to answer questions of people 
remembering that we're answering a person, not just a question. So, you know, depending on like the one who was antagonistic on your on your on your comments, I'm the same way as you. I I'll, I'll rebut twice. That's all you get, and then we're done. So, yeah. you know, I, I can't go all day with these people. So, um, and 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 be honest with you, most are disingenuous. The, the the commenters online oh yeah but, I, but at my conference this past weekend um one of the first people to buy a ticket was an atheist and i've actually struck up a friendship with her and she's even come to our church on easter sunday and good friday and um the church knows she's an atheist and like this is probably easier to do in a house church um i you know i probably more than most just because of the nature of what i do have more of these conversations with people, different worldviews on a regular basis, but treating people as people and just starting from points of agreement. And I think it's the best place. So there's, there's things in life um, that we're all struggling with. They're all, we're all dealing with, you know, we all are in this pandemic together or coming out of it or whatever. And so there's, there's way there's look for commonality, common ground for points you can enter in on. And especially with issues of morality, um, you know, or anything surrounding that, because one huge problem. So most of my issues are with, I guess, atheists or naturalists. And and one huge problem, maybe the huge problem with with naturalism, is they can't ground anything. Most namely, most notably, morality. And what I mean uh, for those listening is, if you can't root or ground where a moral law or standard comes from, then it's just nebulous. This is floating in midair, which, okay, fine. If that's the way it is, that's the way it is. But if it is that way, then we ultimately can't hold anybody accountable for violating a law that's not objective. So when we say, when we look at the world and we see that there's evil and, and even atheists will say, well, the fact that there is evil proves there's no God. Okay. Well, no, it doesn't. It actually proves there is. Mm-hmm. Because in order for you to recognize evil, or if evil is an objective, or what we call ontological reality, um, ontology, I know I'm throwing big words there, but so ontology is what is, what actually is. It's, it's a, like, this is ontologically a pen. Then we have epistemology, which is how I know what I know. It's a study of how I know what I know. How did I come to know this was a pen? You told me, I read it in a book. There's lots of ways to come to knowledge. But what I'm saying is, if a moral law is an ontological reality, that means it's actual, it is, it's legitimate, it's valid, it cannot originate from those who it governs, us. Because if it does, it's always going to be victim to our mental fluctuations, our moral fluctuations. So it's never going to be objective. So once again, if that's how it is, that's how it is. But the question is, is that livable? And would you want to live in a world like that, right? <laughs> Where some people think murder is wrong, some people don't. Do you want to live in that world? Um, and so if evil actually exists, it is only, it is not itself an ontological reality. It is a degradation of a reality, which is goodness or what we call the good. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Well, I would say it's like evil is good gone bad. Uh, uh, Augustine said it is a, a privation. It is like, um, you know, you can you have light. Um, you can have a light with no shadow, but you can never have a shadow with no light. Right. 
um, milk, you buy the milk, it's good, but eventually it spoils, but it's still milk. It's just bad milk. So there's a bunch of examples to show the, the degradation of the perfection, which is goodness, is where evil is, is what evil is. The way you differentiate between good and evil is by using the moral law. But once again, if that moral law comes from us, it's going to shift. Our own you know, human laws that we write and create shift, right? So how could this moral law remain objective? Well, you need a transcendent source. Now, up to this point, I haven't mentioned God. I'm just saying the evidence points to, okay, if I'm a detective, this is what I'm looking for. This is the uh, um, potential person of interest that I'm looking for is someone who's transcendent, that could remain objective, that could provide a moral law. And why someone? Because law, moral laws always pertain or always in regards to people. The, the law of gravity can't be the, the, the um, thing that produces a moral law. So every other naturalistic way forward fails here because you can't start with energy and with, with gravity and somehow get to morality, not objectively at least. The best we can do without God and the paradigm is, you know, me and you, Tony, would say, hey, let's agree to not kill each other cool <laughs> it's just like a handshake agreement yeah yeah but even john locke who who propagated that himself said do not take god out of the situation though he was just saying this is a good thing for practicality but don't get god out of society because then it won't matter about the handshake and he's right that's why friedrich nietzsche last century said in his um diary of a madman said um you know when we've killed god basically the diary um where, where, where is there, there's no more up or down. Where is God? We've, you know, we can't even find our way forward. And he's saying this as one who's advocating for the death of God, but he's also saying there are implications to this. And he predicted that it would be the bloodiest century once we got to that no God mentality. And he was right. The 20th century was bloodier than the first 19 put together. So, you know, the implications. Yeah. Yeah. You know, (laughs) Yeah, and I think that that comes down to where we're, we're, we're seeing the, the big divide in society now. I think a lot of that comes down to that exact, exact thing is people aren't really going to where there's true evidence. And same with how evolution is built. It's, yeah. it's not facts. It's all theory based upon theory based upon theory. And that's not the way that we need to be building building knowledge <laughs> so my, it's funny you said it so my uh my ministry is called proof of the truth and and i was actually preaching at a church um not yesterday the week before and the topic they gave me was what is truth and so the first half of that sermon was like a philosophy lesson and then the second half I, I brought it to the scriptures but i start with truth because if truth is not knowable or cannot be objective and we don't need to be talking about anything else. Like, I don't need to do what I do. You don't need to do what you're doing. We can just go home. So the, the starting point is, is there such a thing as truth? And if there is, how do we know it? How do we determine? There are ways. So there's this, this I don't know how we got here, but the, the world now, I've even had people tell me, I even had one person tell me this weekend, like, we, there's no way to know truth and, and you know, people have their own truth and this and that. How do we know who's right? Like, 
I get the confusion because there's just like uh, death by a million cuts. That's kind of how it is in life with all the religions and worldviews and these things. But there is a way to objectively parse through these things. And this is not new. It's not like I created this. There's the two tests of the correspondence theory of truth, coherence theory of truth. Um, do these do these statements or propositions when they're put together, do they correspond to reality? Do they form a coherent worldview? Um, are these things logically consistent? Is there empirical evidence? Is, is it experientially relevant? Like these are all things that are in place that once again is the reason we need to teach this in high school because yeah. those five things I said, every human on the planet needs to know that. I don't care what you do in life. You need to understand how to properly adjudicate between competing thoughts and ideas because ideas have real world consequences. Like I, I honestly, I don't know if I'd be as, I would still be evangelizing and preaching the gospel, but I don't know if I'd be as passionate about this, especially in the philosophical lane as I am, if the implications weren't so dire. There was a quote, I think by Joel Spreckman, he said, remember, the, the, I'm paraphrasing, I'm gonna get it wrong, but he said basically the, not what the Nazis did, it, it wasn't, it didn't start or occur in the, in the camps of Auschwitz and, and these places or even on the battlefields. He said, this started in the lecture halls mm-hmm. of these universities where ideas were allowed to be brought up and fester and grow. And then those ideas were brought to fruition But that's why I say ideas matter, thoughts matter, bad thinking has real world consequences. So how we think does matter. It's not just uh, because the the idea is you have your truth. And so as long as you're just doing you and not hurting anybody, but that's never, nothing stays in a corner for for very long, right? It, It always spills out. There's always some overflow. There's always some collateral damage. And with really bad ideas, there's a lot of collateral damage. So we need to in the church, it's, I, I, and I'm, I might have missed the original question, but I, I'll, I'll come back to it. That is okay. <laughs> but the original um, or this thought carries into the church because I think, and JP Moreland writes about this probably in the middle of the century, last century, some this wave of anti intellectualism was kind of sweeping through the church. Um, kind of in tandem with the, the rise in the charismatic movement and Pentecostalism but it's hurt us and we're reaping um, the, the, the babies of that time um, right now where the fact that I even have to explain apologetics to, to a pastor, you know, like what it is or why they need it. Like I shouldn't have to do that. You know what I'm saying? There's, there's a large, huge tradition. Literally the, all of the early church fathers were apologists. That's all they were. <laughs> In fact, that usually like Justin Martyr, his the title of his work is Apology, Tertullian, Apology. Like this is, I don't know how we miss this. Um, and so if we don't stop neglecting or disavowing the intellectual in our churches, we're giving over that ground to the enemy. We're basically telling people, come to church for your spiritual stuff, but get your intellectual stuff out there. And they will. When we um, understand that Jesus said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, 
I ask people, so how do you love God with your mind? I would say you use it. (laughs) That's one way. I mean, it it just is baffling to me. Like, why wouldn't you want to know more? That's just going to embolden you and and increase your faith. Why wouldn't you want to learn more about God and what he did? And And the awesome thing is Christianity presents out of all other religions, a testable faith which lends itself to finding evidence. I have archaeologists, friends, and like the finds that they, that they have is, it's incredible. And more and like, more. That's really year, cool. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Like they just proved Gideon. Yeah. To be, to be true by, by archaeological evidence and, that they just found. And I'm like, they and just there's another just one that for a long time. <laughs> yeah. There's another one they just found. I was watching on Sean McDowell's channel that proves the, the biblical dating or early dating of the Exodus. Like that's pretty because because skeptics can no longer say, well, that was wrong or the Bible's wrong. Every time they do, it gets away for a few years and then they find something in the ground. It's like, oh, wait, yeah. you were <laughs> the Bible was right all along. So yeah, something else lined up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that's that's one thing that uh, if you even quote, quote like Christian sources and that that's one thing that people are just like, oh, well, that's not a legitimate source. And it's like, well, what do you mean? There's archaeological evidence that's back that backs up this <laughs> right but <laughs> they're right. sayings how can you say that that's not true when uh, you believe evolution and that's based and, on like a little a, a little skull piece of lucy that isn't even like that if you actually line it up it's actually an ape like <laughs> yeah so i, I just uh, i i think it, it's funny i loved uh, the, the program debunk tv because mm. they went and they debunked a whole bunch of these things and i'm like yeah they're showing this evidence like you say all the evidence and lining all that up and teaching people critical like to think critically and and logically in terms of like oh is this actually is this actually true or (laughs) like and i think that's important yeah um and and what is going to be the easiest way for someone to to actually start just understanding it and actually start um getting people to start thinking that way it's a good question um there's a couple books i usually recommend um, by from some of my former trainers, um, I actually recommend their books more than my own. I wrote a book, but it's like, uh, that's where you go. So the first one by Frank Turek, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. It's actually by Frank Turek and Norm Geisler. The second one I recommend a lot is, um, Jim Warner Wallace's book, cold case Christianity. And these are kind of catch-alls where you're going to get a lot of evidence in one location. Just begin to read familiarize yourself with some of the the evidence, the arguments. Um, And I know that the way the world is, is different now, especially the younger generation. You're watching probably a video right now of me and and (laughs) Tony. So I have a YouTube channel as well. It's called Relentless Pursuit of Purpose. Uh, I I try to do a a video every Thursday, either an interview or a video I create, but I bring experts on um, that I know. And like I had uh, Dr. Hugh Ross, astrophysicist on last week. Um, we, we cover everything, you know, not him and I, but I cover every type of thing on my channel. So, um, that's a good place to start just to kind of familiarize yourself with, Hey, I wonder what about the canon? And there's a video on the canon, or I wonder about, um, the problem of evil. So just those types of things. But I think a lot of times, cause you made a good point is that a lot of Christians don't actually know what the issues ha- people have with Christianity are until they get posed with those questions. And then they're kind of, si- um, you know, sideswiped or, or yeah. caught off guard. Like, wait, wait, I thought everybody 
thought what I thought, but you need to know that some people um, don't believe Jesus is God. He, they think he's just a good prophet. Some people think the um, miracles are all um, analogies. Um, they don't think Jesus rose from the, the grave spirit bodily, just spiritually. They don't. Um, you need to know some basic beliefs of Islam. You need to know some basic facts about um, naturalism. Like you just, you need to kind of have a, a mental library where you have a couple things to draw from. And then as you engage in conversations with people, learn from them and not to not, don't even look to push back and say this, listen sometimes. And especially if you don't know the answer, just listen and take it in and then go back home and do some research and come back and give answers when you see yeah. them again. Um, those are, those are some things I'd recommend, but I, but let, let me also free everybody up. You're not going to be the cause of someone not knowing God because you didn't say the right answer. Okay. So mm -hmm. the Holy spirit, more powerful than us, more powerful than myself, he wants them to be saved more than you. Therefore, we're simply being used by him. We're simply a mouthpiece. We're the hands and the feet, and we do our best imperfectly. And understanding that, like Paul said, we plant, we water, but God gives the increase. So, so take the pressure off. Don't feel like you have to be William Lane Craig to, to be able to talk to somebody. You know, no one else is going to be him. Just like there's, there's not even, a, there's no point in trying. He is him. He's, he's the only one. But we all do need to speak up to those who are in our circle. There's people that Dr. Craig will never come in contact with that I won't come in contact with, but you will. And you may be the only Bible people read. So just take your time, prepare yourself as much as possible. You'll never be fully prepared and just be available to God to be used in whatever situation. Yeah, and I think prayer is a huge and prayer part of that yes. yeah because i should have said that down to um you know i always pray before podcasts mm. your words not mine like just speak through us and that's why i like the conversational thing because it doesn't always go the direction i necessarily was heading for but i trust that that's where god wanted the conversation to go mm. and and so i think that that is just important for us in our every day is just pray god use me the way you want me to be used and and i love i always tout out Al, alvin vandergreed's book love to pray because it teaches you how to pray and how to pray effectively and because mm. a lot of people just pray and they just they don't really take it seriously or they don't believe it's going to come true and it's like well no there's there's faith that comes with prayer and having knowledge to back up that gives you a stronger faith which yeah. helps you pray more effectively. And uh, I, I think that that is, that is very important. I think that ties into everything that, that, you've, <laughs> that you've been talking about it, it is prayer and Bible reading. And, and, and that I think is just, is just so huge. And if you could give just a piece of advice for the church in today's society, reaching people, what advice would, would you give them? Yeah, I, um, um, to a group of pastors and leaders on fixing your evangelism. Um, listen, the last two years have hurt us all, some more than others, but it's really hurt the church 
in the West. Mm-hmm. Not actually hurt. Let me let me let me rephrase it. It hasn't actually. It's hurt the way we do church in the West. Yes. Yeah. So I I was I'm hoping and praying that pastors especially took this time to re-examine their ecclesiology, but I know they didn't. <laughs> so most of them. And that's the reason I say that because if the whole pandemic, you were just looking forward to like, can we just get back? Can we get back to the building? Can we get back? Can we get back? I get it. We want a fellowship, but there was a time there. I believe it was almost an opportunity God gave us to say, okay, what is there some things, what are some things I've been not doing? Or what are some things I could tweak? Or what are some things that were missing that would help do what you just said and get people back engaged, especially young people. I, I was talking with a, um, I don't remember somebody at my conference, I think, but we all can see that youth ministries are in decline. We have to be honest with why. When I, when I can teach in a youth group, there was, there was a day and age where this didn't exist. Now it does, which means when I'm teaching, (laughs) we're better off in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know. But you know, if I asked my mom something growing up, like what, what about God, this and that, or whatever question. And she tells me an answer. All right. Well, I guess that's the answer. Like, what am I going to do? There's nowhere to go challenge or check. And I'm not saying we shouldn't challenge or check you. I'm just saying the internet itself is not truth. So just because a kid Googles something and finds what they want, it doesn't make it truth, which is why they need to know how to think. Right. So that's one part of the problem. We're up. We have a lot more to contend with. Our young people have a lot more to fight against. Like me and you growing up was, you know, we had some stuff to contend with, but the way the culture's gone, the over-sexualization of everything and everyone yeah. and, and them having to deal with that at such a younger age. It's like, man, I'm having conversations with my 10 year old, my seven year old that I don't want to have, but I have to, cause I can't let them have it. The the culture. Yeah. And I'm like, but this is not age appropriate for seven. But I, if I don't do it, the culture is going to do it. You see, I'm like, this is not. So we have to wake up and just say, look, the world that we're in now is not the world we, as, a, as the parents who are parents right now grew up in. Mm-hmm. And we have to be a little more aggressive in our approach. So I started teaching my daughter apologetics at age eight. Not the cosmological argument or stuff like that, but just stuff on her level. She yeah, ended she up making a faith. Huh? We do the same kind of thing with our kids. It's, yeah. yeah, same thing, right? Train up. It's not like it's that's a very intentional thing. The Shema that they would recite twice a day in in ancient Israel in Deuteronomy six, um, wherever you go, when you sit, when you walk, when you like lay down, teach these things to your kids. That's that's what they recited. Basically, wherever you wherever you are, whenever you are, you should be showing and teaching your kids something about about God. Now, that doesn't mean a Bible study. It could just be how you respond to somebody they're they're seeing they're watching some lessons are caught not taught so when my wife and i are doing bible study i don't make my kids come they just they see it they're growing up seeing this is normal when they see me and their their mother my wife pray they just see it they see oh that's what they do right and then sometimes they're like i want to pray too okay come on but i'm not forcing anything they just want to see they want to be a part of what mommy and daddy do. And on top of that, I do teach. So it's not just that I am saying, this is why we pray. This is who we're praying to. We read the Bible. So there's, it's all those things together, but of course we have fun too. So it's not just, Hey, sit down, learn the Bible. And then, you know, um, but it's, 
it has to be incorporated. And there's teachable moments. Something happens and someone does something, someone says something, you're like, well, you know, God says this about that. And this is how we should, you know, those moments that just randomly happen, use those. So I I think we, we have a lot more opportunities and a lot more ways to, 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 to be good at this, to be better at this as parents and as leaders, if we're paying attention. And as you're doing that, also continue to educate yourself. Don't, don't stop doing that because uh, my <laughs> eight-year-old, seven-year-old even, they'll ask some questions. I remember I was doing bath time. This is way long ago. So bath time, she must have been, or there's both of them there. I don't know, but five, under five. Um, somehow we start talking about the Trinity. I'm like, how are you even asking this question? <laughs> <laughs> but she wasn't saying Trinity. She was just talking about like, how is God, the father, and the son. And the, but they're thinking that's my point. Yeah. There's another resource, a friend of mine who I trained with, her name is Natasha Crane. Uh, she has a book called, uh, what is her book? 40 conversations you should have with your kid or something. 40 God conversations. Anyway, it basically is a guide on how to have apologetic conversations with your kids. If you're a parent, if you're not an apologist, like it's a roadmap. So there's resources out there, y'all. Um, go to coldcasechristianityforkids.com. Jim Warner Wallace, he has 10 videos, all free. You don't have to buy the book. You can watch those videos with your young person, talk through them. They're not even really about the Bible. They're just about literally how to think, how to examine evidence. So there's all these things. And then my own book <clears throat> is a Blueprint for Bible Basics, which I directed more towards teens. Mm-hmm. Teaches them the foundational concepts of the faith. We're not getting into like baptism and tongues and all that. Just who is Jesus? What is worship? What's the Bible? How do I like the basics? It has a study guide included. It's only $10. So I'm just saying like, there's, there's all this stuff out there. And as a parent, you just gotta, you gotta be more intentional about taking advantage of it because I can tell you, you don't want to go through, I've talked to senior pastors, almost every place I speak, when I get done a Q and a, there's some mom, some person comes up to me. My son came home last week from college, told me he doesn't want to be a Christian anymore. Raised in the church all his life, faithful parents, no scandals. And now he's not a Christian. Not because it's not true, just because he got talked out of it because, as Frank Turk said, he's never been talked into it. Yeah. So we, the church, we, the adults, just got to be honest and say, maybe we missed some stuff. Maybe we dropped the ball some places. Maybe not us personally, but we as a collective. And and once we're honest, we can say, okay, let's fix it then. And 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 in part, my ministry exists to come alongside churches to do that. We provide apologetics workshops that churches can host because we know it's just not a real um, a real possibility that churches have apologists on staff. That's just not a thing. (laughs) So we know that, and I can't go everywhere, but we'll go wherever we can. I mean, as many, many places as as we can all over the country where we come in, we deliver the content, we'll do the Q and a, and just be a resource to you. So if you're a pastor and you're like, man, we need this, but I'm not qualified to do this. Reach out proof for the truth.org. Yeah, and that's where I think that uh, I'm a firm believer that people should try to encourage their kids to go to at least one year of Bible school to try to get that, at least that foundation. I only have one year myself because I got married and then we we had to take a year off. So I took my other studies instead of 
instead of finishing up with Bible school. But I'm a firm believer in at least a year because I think it just gives you that strong foundation and that knowledge. And if you're going to go to off to university, you want to have that knowledge. You want your kids to have that knowledge. Like you're talking about before they, before they go and try and get talked out of it by some professor who thinks that, that he has a right to (laughs) disavow your religion. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, thanks for coming on. Is there any uh, final thoughts that that you have before we uh, sign off here? Um. Not final thoughts. I mean, I like I said, I appreciate what you're doing. I appreciate you having me on. I think it's a, it's a great thing. We need more of this. So thank you. Um, I just want to encourage everyone listening. Listen, um, you know, this is the way God's called me specifically to help the body. And I'll do as much as I can. But I just want everyone to really take this away. That this is not an optional thing that we as the body of Christ get to kind of bow out of or bow into. Apologetics must be a part of what we do when we teach. So wherever I can help, I will. Um, but if I can't just, you know, if you want to learn on your own, that's, that's encouraged as well. Yeah. Uh, I would encourage everybody to check out your, the, the proof for truth.org. I, I, it's a good website. Um, and uh, as well, I'll put a link to your, your Alex R. McElroy, um, dot com. I'll put a link to that as well. So people can check out that and, and see who you are. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, I have just been uh, blessed with so many people who are requesting to be on the show, and I'm impressed with how many people want to share their testimonies or what they're doing uh, for the Lord right now. Uh, If I haven't got back to you, I promise I will get back to you. Uh, I look forward to to speaking with each of you and interviewing you. And uh, keep tuning into the show. There's lots of, of new people that are coming on here, and if you're considering wanting to to come on the show uh just shoot me an email at tpeters745 at gmail.com and uh, i will get back to you